This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kella, where I speak with cybersecurity professionals, perhaps like yourselves, about the cybercrime underground and other cybersecurity trends. Today, I have with me Brian Stack, Vice President of Engineering and Dark Web Intelligence at Experian Consumer Services. Thanks for chatting with me today, Brian. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it and looking forward to this conversation. Likewise. We briefly discussed just how wonderful it will be to talk about the consumer angle of cybersecurity. So before we get into what's going to be a great conversation, let's talk a little bit more about you. Would you mind telling the audience some more about yourself and how you got to experience at this point in your career? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, definitely an interesting and a winding story, like most technical careers often. So I'm a classically trained. Uh, I got my bachelor's in computer engineering, and I was really focused on networking and IT. You know, I thought I would be kind of, I was on the, you know, the VP of cybersecurity path early in my career. I started off professionally as uh, an IT professional and a little bit of a white hat hacker for Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory in upstate New York. It's a GOCO, so Department of Energy, government owned, and Lockheed was the company who operated it. And we supported the U.S. Navy nuclear submarine uh, fleet during that time. So it was interesting just because, so this is late 90s. You know, I was immersed in a very different security philosophy uh, for really at the start of my career. Serious, disciplined, aggressive, maybe sometimes too aggressive in a culture compared to at the height of the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, which was all about move fast and break things. So uh, I started off in a very different position than I think a lot of people who graduated around the same time. Then came kind of a life-changing choice for me. So it was, okay, do I go back to my master's or do I focus on technical certifications? Microsoft, Novell, Oracle, uh, all these were really starting to explode onto the scene. My decision, my life decision was, you know what, I'm going to go back and focus on fundamentals, get better. And I got my master's computer engineering uh, and distributed systems from UC Irvine. I wrote software, uh, missile defense software early in my career, also had my own software company for several years and uh, was trying to convince, uh, states me a little bit, but was trying to convince Hollywood video and blockbuster video in the early 2000s to leverage some content that my company had built to move their streaming online. So let's store it for another day. (laughs) But uh, I've been uh, working at Experian, you know, the third, one of the three large credit bureaus in the U.S., for over a decade. In 2016, we purchased CSID, which was a B2B2C focused company that provided software and services for consumers and businesses who have had their identity stolen or directly impacted by a data breach. So this is how I got back into the cybersecurity space with a big focus on the dark web ecosystem, which was kind of the crown jewel of the data within that acquisition because we acquired a massive data lake of raw dark web data. Oh, right. So you had enough to explore and enough to really dig into at that point in your career. Is there a reason why 
this one space drives you today? Because now you've moved up the ranks to VP of engineering and dark web intelligence. So there must be even a motivating factor to why you're still immersed in this one space. Yeah, well, I mean, it is extremely fascinating, right? There are so many characters and layers to it, and it's evolving so quickly. But for me, one of the things that gets me up in the morning, as they say, my team is highly motivated on, is protecting consumers, finding ways to educate them, teach them. I mean, I think we all want to protect mom from having her identity stolen. So it's, it's a very powerful motivator. And, you know, how cyber attacks happen not only just the technical details, the psychological details, um, they're very complicated and tricky. And so it's very difficult for a late person out there going through their day to day as their digital footprint seems to expand and spread. How do they try to navigate these waters to make sure that their financial and their own personal identity is as protected as possible, while also obviously leveraging the fact that we are in a digital world? And if you want convenience, you need to be part of that digital world. I'm fascinated by the fact that you are deeply involved with the personal worries of individuals. I've spoken to a lot of people on this podcast who are more focused about enterprise worries. And so then we we end up digging into conversations that are about organizational resiliency, but really at the core of that are the people. And then the people contribute to the process and technology. Now, the people themselves have their own personal lives. Your mission and what you do is to drive what seems to be that consumer and customer literacy to protect themselves, to enable them. There's only so much you can do with the intelligence you have. What is the literacy among the customers that you interface with or you have knowledge of? Yeah. So, I mean, we do provide a lot of free content on the Experian website, also as part of the interlinks in the product, trying to, in very simple terms, make it not only easy to navigate the product so people can understand, you know, what is this alert? How many alerts do I have? What does it all mean? But we are, are really kind of the pivot point for me about two years ago, listening to a lot of our consumers calling into our call centers, hearing those calls and hearing the frustration of, hey, we like the product. We appreciate this. I'm glad I understand if my social security number or my credit card or how many emails are potentially exposed, but what do I do, right? And so this is the next evolution, getting away from here's what the dark web is, here's why your identity is at risk, here's some alerting and monitoring to more interactive education, meaning when you get a specific alert, how does it rank? Is it a low risk, a medium risk, and a high risk? based on not just that specific potential dark web alert, but your overall internet footprint, what should you be doing? Like, what is that action plan you should take? And that is where we're heavily investing in the future of our product offerings is really moving towards prevention, prediction, and analytics. Prevention, prediction, and analytics, which is hopeful. I think a lot of product spaces are moving more towards the proactive security space and not trying to be more reactive because then there's only so much. For the consumers themselves, how interested are they and how motivated are they to secure their own data? Maybe going down a rabbit hole here, but I wonder, I really do wonder these days. Yeah. So some of the new product offerings that we are starting to build, we actually do, we have a pretty disciplined product pipeline. And part of that product pipeline process, that's a mouthful, 
is that we do go to the voice of the customer. We actually interview consumers and we have interviewed hundreds of consumers. And there is a real desire and appetite using words like, give me more control, give me more power. How can I get my data off the dark web? Which obviously you can do, but there are techniques and things you can do to ultimately shrink your entire digital footprint. And so that's where we're trying to focus on. And, it, and there is a real appetite. I'd say some of these surveys we put out there, anywhere from 75 to 80%, when we talk about the additional analytics, reporting, and prevention tools and services and scores we may add in terms of kind of an ID protection or a health score, they're very, very bullish on that and they love the idea. Oh, this is hopeful. Okay. Well, let's get into some of the discipline of your education and then furthermore, your career. And I'll focus primarily on the dark web intelligence side of the house. I want to make sure that over the course of time, listeners to this podcast and then overall, any person that's vaguely interested in cybersecurity is no longer looking at something like quote unquote dark web as a mysterious place or an amorphous place where data that is only obscure can be gathered. Can you, for us, define in your current role what happens in dark web intelligence gathering and what that actually entails? Yeah, so that's a great question. I always like to start it off by saying there's kind of a strict a strict view of the dark web and a more liberal view. And so the strict view of the dark web is when people think of the Tor network, which actually was created by MIT and the U.S. Navy in the 90s uh, and in these kind of onion services. In my current role and an experience, we kind of open up the aperture. We take a much more liberal view. So for us, quote unquote, we say dark web protection. We're looking at anywhere and everywhere on the internet, whether it be the quote unquote, the traditional dark web or the surface web where your identity could be potentially stolen or people are engaging in, in selling your personal information. So this includes places like Telegram and Discord and messaging services. It includes places like Facebook and Facebook Messenger, or even just on surface web internet sites. So there's a pretty famous one, pastebin.com. It's completely legal. People post a lot of legitimate stuff on there to share. It's a sharing forum, but it's very open. And so people can post often, here's some personal information I know about XYZ, or I'm a disgruntled employee in a company and they'll post some information, could it be HR information, financial information on, on what would be called truly the surface web. So wonderfully put and very simple at, at that. Begs the question, the term dark web intelligence and then intelligence itself in this space has evolved over the course of time from your education days and then throughout your career. How have you seen the discipline of cybercrime threat intelligence gathering evolve. Yeah. So in my first foray, you know, kind of in the industry in the late 90s, it was all about viruses delivered via spam and network intrusion from solo actors. Crypto didn't exist. The dark web of Tor was just really being built, wasn't really being used in the public sense. And it, it is interesting, right? So the first, I mean, we hear all here about ransomware nowadays. The first documented case of ransomware is a really interesting story. It's Dr. Joseph Pop. In 1989, he sent out about 20,000 floppy disks. People installed them. He was part of a medical conference. And he locked their computer and said, you know, give me uh, about $189 to this P.O. box in Panama. Now, it took 20 years before really ransomware took hold from that really that first incarnation in the 89. 
So when I came back in 2016, you know, the dark web was alive and well. It was a marketplace of hundreds of millions of stolen data points. Everything from credit cards to social security numbers to passports to full databases that have been breached. You know, there were tutorials and training sessions and information sharing. There were third party services offering very cheap services, you know, where in the, like today, where a company goes out, hires a third party to do a marketing campaign. Those type of services exist on the dark web. If you want to do a spamming campaign, monitor who's opening your spam, how's it performing. You can hire third party vendors for that. Organized crime, as I like to say, really began to operationalize the dark web for their attacks. Nation states and anarchists implemented, you know, highly sophisticated attacks and ransomware has really started to take hold along with a move to more messenger based services like Discord and Telegram. You know, going back, botnets didn't exist. Those exist so you can spread these attacks at scale and at mass across the globe. One of the questions I always get is often when I speak uh, to companies and at conferences is, you know, how does data get on there? And I've broken it down to five groups. There's nation states that see the dark web. There's organized crime. There's script kiddies, which are, you know, people think of them as the traditional Hollywood hacker. There's anarchists and there's disgruntled employees. I think that's one that often gets overlooked. There are services available on the dark web that are actively looking for people who are unhappy in HR departments or finance departments who have access to tons of sensitive information. So today, I think I can boil it down in terms of the future of cybersecurity space. Usually the conversations are around three themes. Mm. One is the breadth of the data. You know, hundreds of millions of data points previously to hundreds of billions of data points currently available today. The professionalism of the attacks, the days of the Nigerian prince asking for money to make poorly worded email are long behind us. Now we have accurate, relentless, intelligent, I would even say persuasive attacks written to text messages, spamming, masquerading as delivery services. We have double, triple, and quadruple extortion ransomware attacks. And the cyber criminal underworld is heavily organized in a well-oiled company. And I think the final kind of big theme that we're seeing with the future is obviously with the rise of mass adoption of AI and ML. This obviously will be used to create the next generation of social engineering attacks with really, I think, a real dangerous potential for a black swan event within within a nation or potentially globally. Well, many are with you on that page. And that gets right back to the motivations and the actors that you described. And you listed us five. We have the nation states and then we have uh, dynamically opposed to that anarchists, one that required no nation state be, and then there being organized crime, and then what others would call that lone wolf or a script kitty, one doing it on their own without much a network, and then insider threat actors. Now, insider threat actors, script kitties, and organized crime, most of those seem to be driven mostly by financial motivations. When we look at nation states and anarchists, all of them are focused primarily on either breaking the state structure as much as they can by causing some kind of havoc or otherwise we're looking at just sniffing, constantly yeah. learning and intelligence. Yep. Yeah. Completely, completely agree with that sentiment. And I, I think that's one of the big things for those who are up and coming interested in this space 
it is really think about the psychology, start to learn tools are great, learn the tools, learn the trade, but the psychology, not only of how victims are extorted and exposed, but also the psychology of the attacker, right? If you're working for a small credit union or a small hospital, yeah, you're going to, it's inside of insider attacks or organized crime. Those are your targets. The nation state's really not going to go after a, a small, you know, a child's hospital in Atlanta. That's not their target. So understanding who wants to attack you, what motivates them will help you as a security professional figure out how best to protect and train your staff in the event of such an attack. Wonderful advice. Let's dig more into the psychology of the threat actor and then the experience that you're currently evolving and that will only continue to evolve at Experian. I make the assumption that you're primarily dealing with organized crime, and then perhaps to some degree you get others. Uh, am I making a fair assumption that the majority of what you're dealing with is organized crime? So it's interesting. You know, for us, we don't discriminate. At the end of the day, we like to say we're kind of a dark web fisherman. Like we go out there, we have large nets, we have automation, we have, we have human intelligence interacting with a lot of these forums. And the data we get can come from organized crime. It can come from, we often can find images of, it looks like someone's iPhone was hacked and someone dumped it online of a, an image of a napkin and they've written down maybe their social security number and their bank account. We find those images online and, and we scoop them up. So in terms of a composite of dark web data, yeah, I think, I think most of it is organized crime in nation state just because they have the financial backing. But in terms of the attribution of where our data comes from, it really is a, it is a mix of all five. A mix of all five. Wow. What are some interesting things that you've learned over the course of, I'll limit the time, the past year, maybe two years, as far as trends building and the intelligence you're gathering? Yeah. So there's been a pivot point about two years ago. We've seen an explosion away from traditional kind of dark web markets and forums. So when you think about the, the Silk Roads and Alien Market and and those such, raid the raid forum, a lot of those have been either shut down through international law enforcement efforts, or they've been hacked by other potential red hat hackers and vigilantes in the space. And so shockingly, cyber criminals themselves don't like their information published online. And so well, because of the <laughs> decrease in confidence in traditional uh, dark web markets and forums, there's been a big push, a big move to not just use Discord and Telegram and Facebook Messenger for communication, but as a platform for execution of these attacks and for the e-commerce side of it, for payment. So that's one of the big trends. The other big thing, which is we are we are starting to invest in, is the metaverse. So the metaverse obviously is not just one place. There's a number of different companies who are dabbling in this, but we are looking to expand in that space as a new frontier, right? At the end of the day, cyber threat actors will go where the people are. And so as people migrate and move maybe to their digital footprint from, you know, traditional websites and messaging services into the metaverse, we're trying to find out, you know, what are the vulnerabilities in this space? Because it is it is definitely the Wild West right there at this point. Cyber criminals are following the people is what I'm gathering throughout all of these trends. There's no running from it. If we're finding that content collaboration platforms, communication platforms are where a lot of the action is happening. Well, that's just generally what's been happening in the what I would quote as the post-COVID environment, right? That's 
that everyone's lives became that. And so it just seemed like you could game it to get there. And the metaverse, though, the metaverse is interesting, though. It feels more transparent than not uh, compared to. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. It's just trying to figure out what. So as people try to build businesses and e-commerce starts to maybe take hold in those spaces, there's just an opportunity to, I think people will often feel like, hey, this is a new space. It's maybe a trusted space. All my mm-hmm. friends are here. And so threat actors will take advantage of those emotions within this new market. You know, obviously, and a lot is paid through cryptocurrency, right? There's a lot of tokens and crypto tokens that are intertwined with the metaverse. And so because of that, the payment methods make it so it's anonymous and it's a great place to potentially set up shop, so to speak, to try to find new ways to exploit people. This puts the onus on all of us as practitioners and then vendors as well to work towards the cyber hygiene and cyber literacy of commonplace, everyone, people. Seems like we have to go back to basics for everyone, right? Yeah, I I think it is getting back to basics. And regardless of, again, what space you're in, whether it started off usually as, you know, spammy and email attacks and, and websites and moved into messenger services, Usually the psychology behind the attacks is is very similar. You know, people will try to manipulate you for sympathy. They'll try to leverage authority. They'll come in as a, an administrator or, or a call center agent. They'll look for uh, scarcity as an emotion in terms of, hey, this is a last minute deal. Oh, you just signed up for, you know, some new part of the metaverse. You know, here's how you can get some free tokens to get yourself going, right? And so... This is where people, again, a lot of people are entering the metaverse who really don't know exactly what they're getting into. In the same way, a lot of people are still invested in crypto, really not understanding what it is they have or what it is they're exactly investing in. And so cyber criminals, just like fraudsters, will take advantage of that. Hmm. Likely. (laughs) It just seems natural, uh, unfortunately, but it is. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you run across often as it pertains to your work in dark web intelligence and then otherwise just generally cybercrime underground? I would say there's probably three or four, I think, misconceptions that I've seen that really I think we need to address, you know, not only security professionals, but I think also within the media as we try to teach people, you know, about this space. And again, improve learning for across the board. One is the educational gap. I think there is such a focus on tools that if you just get the latest new tool or there's some new fancy tool that's out there and people purely being trained on, hey, if we can get the, the, the WAF right and we get our firewall rules right, we got our monitoring in place, you know, we're good to go. And I think there needs to be much more of an, an investment in the educational fundamentals. You know, as I mentioned back, I made that big life decision. I can go in and got, you know, Microsoft accreditation. I went back, got my master's understood more the fundamentals of how the internet works and how someone would potentially do a memory buffer overflow. Understanding those critical pieces, those threats from 80 years ago of how people shut down servers, shut down systems, do denial of service attacks, they're fundamentally the same. The tools and the look and feel have changed, but the fundamentals are the same. Also, as I mentioned, investment in the psychology of cyber. I often in hardcore, I would do two hardcore technical universities. And it's often the big focus out. You don't worry about the soft skills. Understanding, and there are there, there's some great researchers out there and, and kind of the psychology of cyber 
is an up-and-coming sect, a subdivision of psychology. Robert uh, Saldani, there's a great book. He wrote it, I want to say, in the late to mid-80s. And he broke down, he was more focused on marketers, like how marketers manipulate people with things like consensus and authority and, and trying to be a good Samaritan and the scarcity of goods. But those same principles apply to how threat actors, as they craft their messages, manipulate people. I think a general misunderstanding of threat actors. I guess one thing, and I'm guilty of this too, I often just bundle them together, right? We say, oh, there's threat actors, there's threat actors, be careful of threat actors. You really need to not think of them as this gigantic entity. As I mentioned, I think you need to think about those five distinct groups, the skills they have, what motivates them. Who's funding them? How are they funded? And then what type of targets do they generally like to hit? And then you can figure out, hey, who's a potential? Who's the front actor in my space? What drives them? What, what motivates them? And you can create, I think, a proper plan of action. One that drives me crazy is kind of the basement hacker myth. This lone, dysfunctional, or the other extreme we often see, right, is the super genius. And I think security professionals in companies often don't understand who they're fighting. You know, Hollywood, professionals within the space, politicians, media, sometimes we're inundated with this myth. And I think it's imperative that people in the space, starting out or senior, really educate the C-level suite, understand that you're up against a professional, highly educated, highly organized, and often very well-funded groups. So you need to take this seriously and make sure you have a plan. And if you do have a plan, Make sure you follow through and simulate that plan. It's easy to put a plan together and say, hey, if we're a victim of ransomware attack, we're going to do A, B, and C. But in the moment, emotions take hold. So that's why simulated training, I think, is really important so that when that day comes and you are in an active situation, you know, people's fears, anger don't sway their judgment and they just follow through on the action plan they put in place. One more than I could ask for, honestly. Ryan, this was wonderful. Everything from the, the the discipline of psychology, I'll make sure to get folks Robert Saldani's book, to the education gap and not relying entirely on tools and technology all the way, all the way down to humanizing the cyber threat actor and really understanding the motivations from that angle. I think incredibly helpful. Truthfully, very incredibly helpful. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah. So let's talk about zooming into the future, looking at the future of the discipline you're involved in. And we, we touched on a little bit about the AI ML aspect, but just by way of where the future of cybercrime intelligence will go, what do you think is something to look out for that is incredibly worrisome? I know you've listed these misconceptions and we can already pair them in a way. But what are some other things that are very worrisome that you think that organizations have to get on top of now? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously with everyone's talking about chat, GPT and AI, that technology will be in the hands of threat actors. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, chat, GPT and a lot of the ones that are, that are being published, they have mechanisms in place. So you can't just say, hey, give me some code to, you know, to hack the federal government or, you know, give me some out of the box, you know, DDoS attack. But the reality is it's not just, again, ChatGPT is a product. It's about the underlying technology. And, and I think the genie is out of the bottle. Threat actors, the underlying mechanisms, the fundamentals of how these things, these technologies are built are going to be leveraged by nation states and anarchists. I think there needs to be an eye on 
understanding that, again, this is a business for a lot of people. So they're looking to operationally improve and optimize their attacks. So I think we'll see things like more geo-calibrated phishing attacks. So rather than just a blast of a generic piece of spam, again, looking at the psychology of people that, guess what? You're probably going to catch a spam message at one o'clock in the afternoon while you're at work. Maybe 8 p.m., 9 o'clock at night, where you're a little bit tired, just trying to sit down and relax for the day. That could be the perfect time to send that, that fake Amazon message to you to say, hey, your order you expected tonight is delivered. Click here to reschedule. Right. So I think we'll see much more intelligent attacks around how to really just get a few extra percentage of clicks through. I think there's new frontiers, as I mentioned. I think space, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of satellites. And I think the new frontiers in terms of cyber attacks will be around space and around the metaverse. I think the thing that kind of keeps me up at night is really a, it is, is a major black swan event that ties in a lot of stuff around deep fake technology. If I ever get around to writing a, a book on this topic, you know, I have this after doing this for almost seven years now, I always get asked, what's the likelihood of a novel cyber event? Like what's coming? And I've kind of broken it down to kind of three factors, I think, in terms of maybe saying, yes, there's a high likelihood of this new type of novel cyber event. One is technical accessibility and viability. So is the technology needed to perform the event available to the layperson? So if we look at the original ransomware attack from Dr. Pop 20 years ago, ransomware didn't take off at that time because he was sending out floppy disks and he was writing the code himself. Nowadays, you can buy attacks, you can outsource the attacks. Now with ChatGPT and the availability of things like deepfake technology, the accessibility and viability to quote unquote lay people is there. The other factor is so technical accessibility viability is factor one times manipulation of human behavior. Obviously, ransomware attacks and something, a deep fake attack about a potential nuclear strike that happens that's imminent any minute within, let's say, New York City, God forbid, that would obviously strike at the heart of people's fear, right? So that would really be able to touch a chord. In the same way, ransomware nowadays touches a chord. People feel vulnerable. They feel like, okay, it's easy to click on somebody to get these attacks because these threat actors have manipulated them with either consensus, through authority, through scarcity of goods. And then I think the last piece of figuring out is something novel is the economic benefit. So well, we won't know who benefits. I think a black swan event of a fake nuclear attack would obviously have massive blowback. So we loan attacker or small anarchist group, they would never pull this off. And so it would require a nation state who potentially could have economic benefit. So with DFIG, AI, the technical accessibility is there, the viability is there. Obviously, manipulation of human behavior with the nonstop news about, obviously, things that the awful things that are happening in Ukraine and, and kind of the nations across the world are on a sense of heightened alert. And then who would be the potential economic benefit in such a situation? There's definitely a case to be made that that is rising and there are obviously third parties who potentially could benefit from such a catastrophic event, even if it didn't happen. Just the idea of it happening as a new event, I think that that raises it and makes it a, a viable threat compared to, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Oof. It's like the global temperature for infrastructure attacks is high. 
Many are saying that you're espousing that even now that it is absolutely possible. And before we would say, no, it requires X amount of escalation. But now it seems that, no, <laughs> it's um, the, depends the, who has the power. Exactly. I think black swan attacks are what I would say novel attacks in general. I've broken it down into kind of three variables, technical accessibility and viability. So is there a delivery mechanism? Can you get it out to the masses? Whatever the attack is, whatever the, the threat is, how does it manipulate human behavior? Is it really going to hone in on people's fear or people's greed or people's willingness to follow authority? And then the last factor that I think kind of dries up the confidence level of is an attack like this imminent is economic benefit. You know, qui bono? Who, who potentially benefits economically from this? And so, you know, we talked about the global temperature, obviously with the war in Ukraine. The, the big thing that really worries me is that there is this, the table has been set. Looking at these three variables, deep fake technology is very easily accessible and it's pretty good. It is for, for the lay person to use. You don't need a lot of infrastructure to pull it off. Obviously, foundationally with social networks, the delivery mechanism is there. Manipulating human behavior. I mean, this is something people obviously we see, we've been seeing this for the last year. There is heightened concern throughout the world that this could turn into more of a global conflict that we haven't seen since you know, obviously World War II, right? So people are on edge. They're, they're vulnerable because of that. And then there is an economic benefit with something like this. You definitely could see a nation state who's maybe in the mix or not in the mix in this current process potentially leverage this. I think the good part is I think there are enough safety mechanisms in place that the worst would not happen. But just sending out a video, you know, from a major head of state saying, you know, our Atlanta or New York City or Kiev is about to be hit with a nuclear weapon in the next 30 minutes, the chaos that would ensue is where there's the real threat, you know, threats to people's lives, property, and overall well-being. In, a, I think, a less dramatic sense, the growth of ransomware, I think, is tied to these three principles. As I mentioned, Dr. Pop in the 80s came up with the idea of ransomware. But back then, he wrote it himself. The delivery mechanism was he would send out floppy disks. So nowadays, ransomware really took off in the in around 2013 timeframe because the dark web took off, a lot more data, a lot more services were readily available. Obviously, cryptocurrency came into fruition in around 2008 to 2010, but really became available to the quote-unquote public around 2012-13, being used in the dark web community. Mani ransomware manipulates human behavior, right? It, it gets in people in staffs who are not trained. Uh, they usually click. Usually they get messages saying, this is the CEO or the head of HR. You need to fill out some forms. And so it's very easy to manipulate human behavior in non-traditional, you know, technology companies. So, you know, schools and hospitals, their mission is not to be tech savvy. Their mission is to teach kids or to make sure people get healthy. So they're, they're soft targets. And then the economic benefit. Quickly, the underground community figured out ransomware works. And that's why we've seen an evolution from single extortion, which is, hey, we encrypt, pay us, the double extortion, we encrypt, pay us, we'll put a sample online to expose you, to then it went to triple extortion in around 2021, which was, we're also going to do a denial of service attack to put pressure on you. And now we've seen quadruple extortions where they're going, they're doing all three of those things. Plus they're actually contacting your consumers or employees to say, hey, guess what? You know, we have a company XYZ's personal information. We have your personal information. 
maybe you should give them a call and have them pay that ransom. So this is the evolution we're seeing. And it's because of these three factors, I think, all line up that ransomware took off in the last five, six years. Incredibly insightful. Again, you are definitely educating a lot of security practitioners and entrants into the discipline on this one podcast, just by giving us an insight into what can be and what education and what tools and what acumen can do, both for good and for bad. Now, I think let's leave off on this note and I'll ask you one last question and I believe you'll have something great to say. What are three pieces of actionable advice that you would give to security practitioners listening in today? Yeah, so I would say, and we talked about this throughout, but definitely mm-hmm. concentrate on human psychology. Behavioral researchers like Rebel Sadani, he has a great book. There's also another security evangelist out of Germany, Eddie Williams. And he talks a lot about the fact that like, he has his Williams rule, if I remember. That's about, you know, there's the technology factor, but also the, the human behavior factor. And so you need to weigh both when you're thinking about things. Run attack simulations, not just against your system. Again, this is where the tool, where everyone's obsessed with tools. Well, we got to run the tools. We got to run the pen test. Run tests with your employees. We're starting to see more and more companies, thankfully, start to train their employees by sending them fake phishing emails to see when they click, how they click. And it's not to be punitive. It's to educate them, to teach them, to see those behaviors, see how well-crafted these messages are. So that if they do get a message from the HR department or CEO, their first instinct is not that, oh, let me, oh, this is, let me click. It's, oh, could be a phishing attack and then verify. And then I think lastly is think beyond just technology, right? I think there's, there's a few states in the US, New York, Texas, North Carolina that are looking at maybe banning ransomware payments. So are there things we can do as a country, as a state, as a company? to rethink things outside of just let's buy the latest tool. How should, maybe we our stance should be publicly. We will not pay ransomware. So you can attack us, great. We're backed up, we're fully restored, but we're going to go on record that it's not going to happen. Now, there may be unintended consequences, but I think these conversations and these experiments, we need, I, I'm hoping other executives in the cybersecurity space start to think beyond just technology. A wonderful note to leave us on for all the listeners listening in today. Thank you for joining us. The great book that Brian is giving us here on Robert Saldani's work is Influence, Science, and Practice. I'm so glad that you brought it up, Brian. It is definitely a top 10 on influence and manipulation and the art of it. Better to know what to avoid to know how to avoid it and better to know how to do it to avoid it. So exactly. you're really teaching us well on this podcast episode. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me today and for giving us everything that you have. I want to make sure that listeners who will definitely be interested in everything that you've provided know where to follow you and where to keep up with your work. How can they do that? Yeah, so I'm pretty easy to find. You can just Google Brian Stack and Dark Web. And I guarantee you my LinkedIn will pop up some of the articles I've written. I'm also on Twitter at, at Brian M. Stack. So occasionally I will post some stuff there, interesting articles. And uh, yeah, so hit me up there. would love to chat. And if anyone has any questions, please, I'm open. I'm passionate about teaching the world and so that people are more educated so that they're safe. It's that passion, that willingness, and that, I think, also compassion for people 
that keeps me here and knowing that I've met people like you, Brian, who are also just as involved and care so much is just uplifting all of the time. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Zyra. You have a great Um, day. Likewise. And for all of the listeners of Future of Cybercrime podcast, thank you for joining me today and for listening into this conversation. We release bi-weekly. So be on the lookout every other week for an interesting conversation. Can't wait until this one is up. And as always, we welcome a conversation. If you hear something that interests you, if you agree, if you disagree, anything that you feel, we're open to it. Talk to us. Feel free to let me know if even you would like to talk about something on this podcast. And until next time, thank you for joining. See you then. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.